Um, I was in a hotel room this week with a man named Dr. Gary Brashears, who is a professor at Western Seminary in Portland. Uh, we were on the West Coast, and so my internal clock wakes me up at 6.30 Texas time, no matter where I am, and so at 4.30 in the morning I woke up and didn't want to wake him up, and so I went down to the lobby of the hotel to work on sermon and read a little bit, and when I got back up to the hotel, uh, Dr. Brashears asked me uh, what I was reading, and so I told him I'm preaching on 1 Peter 2 on submitting to authorities today. Um, now, Gary, Dr. Brashears, he's, he's pushing 70 if he's not there yet. He's an academic, soft-spoken, bold, and hugely intelligent, but soft-spoken man. But when I told him I'm pre- preaching on these verses and submitting to authorities, he kind of rose up with this powerful voice and goes, you're not teaching universal submission, are you? Because we are called to obey, but not if we're commanded to sin. We're called to obey, but not if we're commanded to sin. I'd worked for, this is, this, is a, this is a doozy of a text, and so I've been working on it for weeks, and I was like, all right, one sentence, there it is. So again, for the second time today, that's our sermon. We can pray and go home. There we are. Um, until Easter, though, in reality, we are in this third contrast that Peter brings us to as we consider what it looks like to thrive in spiritual exile. Uh, If you're new with us, we're we're asking the question, how do we live as faithful Christians in an increasingly less Christian-looking society? And so we're seeing different contrasts that God gave us through his servant Peter. And this third contrast involves one of the least popular words in our culture today. Um, And the contrast is this, while while an individualistic and a Western society rejects authority, Christians are called to submit. Next week we see submission in marriage. Today we see submission as it relates to slaves and government. Um, One author even wrote that these verses are about Christian responsibility toward all forms of rightful human authority, whether we agree with all the policies of that authority or not. Let me say that again. This author says these verses are about Christian responsibility toward all forms of rightful human authority, whether we agree with all the policies of that authority or not. And I want to guard us as we jump in against a gut response to that. Um, In our political climate, in our cultural climate today, some of us would respond to that and say undyingly yes, and others would say expletive no to that. And and wherever you are on that spectrum, I just want to invite you and ask you, plead with you, frankly, to, to kind of keep your minds open and hear God's word on this rather than our own opinions that have been formed by a lot of different authorities, okay? Um, I also want to guard us against kind of being super myopic and and, and focusing exclusively on 2018 in America. Um, I I want to remind you of Peter's original context. Do you remember who's he he writing to? Elect exiles is the term that he gave them. Half of his audience um, was was scattered throughout modern-day Turkey. Some, well, all of them were scattered through modern-day Turkey. Half of them were Gentiles. They were displaced from Rome. Why? because the emperor was killing Christians. The other half uh, were former Jews. They're displaced from their homeland. Why? Because Jewish authorities are killing Christians. And so I just want us to keep that perspective in mind as we talk about this in America in 2018. I think it might be a helpful thing to just mull on in the back of our mind. So let me pray for us. Uh, Father God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that while there are a lot of voices that try to tell us how to respond to all sorts of situations, we have the one authoritative truth of your scriptures breathed out by you through your servants. Pray that you would guard our minds, Lord. Guard our hearts. Pray that you would teach us. Would you keep my words in check, Lord? Would you keep all of our minds in check? Um, And would you be our guide and helper spirit? 
It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to read through the first half of this passage. This is kind of the, the human side, if you will. So 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 13, here's what God says. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, the emperor, sent by the emperor to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, or in literal Greek, slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of the Lord. It's the word of God. All right, so the thesis for Peter, the first words of this passage, which may already make the hairs on some of your necks stand up, is be subject to every human institution. And then Peter goes on to list three human institutions. He lists the emperor, the national, or in the the earlier time, the, the international ruler, who in the first century Roman Empire had more power than any American has ever known, More than just being a monarch, the emperor of Rome was considered to be a deity. The second uh, title, governors, who who themselves are subject to the emperor but carry um, his power and his name as regional leaders. And then masters, those who are related to, on a more personal level, slaves or servants. These are the, the three titles, the three human institutions that Peter lists here. And I want to give a little bit of context, especially for slave and master. Um, That was the most common employment relationship in the ancient world. I want to be clear, and theologians want to to make sure that we we guard against, again, kind of our perception. Um, Slaves in Roman Empire were treated better than the U.S. concept of slavery, but that's often where things stop. Um, At the time, slaves were managers. They were skilled workers. Some were even doctors and teachers and artists, yes, but I don't want us to to rest too easily in that or or let us off the hook for that. Slaves were not paid. Their legal status was less than their masters and other in Roman society, and their employment was forced, not optional. And so it wasn't as pretty as sometimes we try to make it to be. In fact, uh, Dennis Edwards, who's a a black theologian who's done some writing on the history of slavery, um, has this to say about slavery, especially as it relates to these verses. The point of these verses is to grasp what Christ-like behavior looks like in one of the most difficult situations imaginable. Here's what he says. Slaves, though in a horrible and unenviable position, have the peculiar honor of serving as living examples of what Christ is like and modeling those values that are important to God. He continues and even says, I don't know why, nobody knows why, New Testament writers didn't speak specifically versus slavery, but Paul's vision of a church community envisions a time where slave and free are obsolete categories. 
and even in writing directly to slaves in the same way that we'll see next week, Peter writing directly to wives, in doing that as a completely countercultural thing, Peter is adding value to those considered the least in first century society. So the point is this, these verses are not just about the government. Um, again, every human institution through history, this could be a boss or a, a literal master. And if every title that he gives, emperor and, and governor and master, if every title that Peter gives is a human authority, each also has an implied relationship. Is that fair? If, if one is the authority, then, then the other is, to use Peter's word, a subject. The emperor is supreme. All people in the empire are his subjects. Um, the, 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 if one party is a master, then the other party is a servant or a slave. And what's more than that, Peter tells us the original intent for each of these roles. If you look at verse 14, the ideal governor, God's intention of allowing the human institution of government, God, the, the ideal governor at the time represented the supreme emperor. The only authority the governor had came from the emperor, and his charge is to carry out the emperor's ideal role, which we're told in verse 14 is to punish evil and praise good. That's the ideal role of the Roman Empire, emperor. In verse 18, the ideal master is supposed to be what to say? Good, gentle. God had an ideal intent for each human institution, every human authority that he allowed to be instituted. And I think that's a good objective starting point for this conversation. Biblically, any human authority is given by God. Biblically, any human authority is given for God and his purposes. And so if we can strip away a lot of the history and a lot of the just junk that we've seen as it relates to authority, let me ask you, if, you, if we could even pretend that all the stuff we've seen wasn't real, would, would it be hard to be subject to every human institution if that institution perfectly followed God's intent? I don't think so. If we stripped away all the sin from the world, well, of course we wouldn't have a hard time following because following would be sin in of ourselves. So if we stripped away all the sin from the world, if, if, if every human institution perfectly followed God's original intent, I would submit it wouldn't be hard to follow that. But guess what? Turns out, not every human authority in all of history has lived out God's perfect and original intent. Shocking. And again, it's easy to let our minds go to our specific experience. I don't want to minimize our specific experience, but, but in China, authorities mandate abortions. Israel's own kings led God's people, his historic people, um, to pagan worship and to child sacrifice and to a civil war and eventually into exile in Babylon. The emperor of Rome, to whom Peter is saying submit, was killing Christians, including killing Peter a few years after he wrote this. And all I'm saying is that every continent, except for Antarctica, and every point in history, many human authorities, these three titles here, but also parents, and also husbands, and also bosses, and also coaches, and also doctors, and also movie directors, and also law enforcement, have a tendency to reject God's original intent for their authority for their own devices and their own preferences and their own authority. And all I'm saying in that is that, in other words, every human authority is human. 
And, and every human authority is tempted by human realities. Many human authorities are not Christians. Human authorities exist with sin and brokenness. And those are the situations that Peter seems to focus on in this verse, in this passage. Because hear me, it would be easy to be subject if an authority is good and right and perfect. And frankly, if I may be so bold, we wouldn't feel the need for God or faith if a subject or if an authority was good and right and perfect. We wouldn't have to wrestle with that authority. Are you disciplined because you sin, Peter asks? Well, yeah, that's justice. You deserve it. There's no applause in suffering justly. Suffering justly. It's when we suffer unjustly at the hands of a human institution that our faith is proven. And this is where Peter's charge become tangible. Look at verse 18 with me again. Chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only the good and gentle ones, but also what? The unjust. So this is about a master, but it implies to all of the authorities that we see. What's the command? As Christians, be subject to human institutions not only when they fulfill, fulfill their ideal role, not only when they're good and gentle and just, but also God is charging us through Peter, be subject to the emperor, the governor, the boss, coach, parent, master, if he or she is unjust and bad. And that's the gut punch verse of this passage, right? Our response to those situations, our response in those relationships are the things that display our true hope. It's under unjust authorities that our faith is proven to be either genuine and lasting or breakable and fading. Verse 13 even says, by, by doing good under, it's by doing good under evil authority that we silence foolish people. Verse 20, if we suffer unjustly for doing good, and if we endure while we're suffering, God labels that grace. So again, it's logical to suffer if we deserve it. It's normal and easy to obey a human institution if they fulfill their ideal role. But it's the way that we respond to injustice and it's the way that we respond to evil and it's the way that we respond to bad masters and it's the way that we respond to sinful authorities that the difference that Jesus makes in us is seen as being actually real. Because, and stay with me, I'm going to try to build a case for us today. There's a fourth authority in these verses. And that authority is greater than the emperor, and that authority is greater than the governor, and that authority is greater than the earthly master. Verse 13, be subject to every human authority. Why? For God's sake. Mindful of the Lord, Peter said in one of these verses, if we suffer injustice, mindful of the Lord, God considers it grace. So even as Peter lists these authorities, there, there's levels, there's there's kind of a hierarchy here. Good or evil, the earthly master will answer to the governor. 
Good or evil, the governor will answer to the emperor, and good or evil, the emperor will ultimately answer to God. And it's there that we start to get a crack of hope in this. The world around us, the the society that we're in as elect exile don't have that hope. The world around us doesn't have that hope. And so when our authority or when their authority or when a national or global leader fails to fulfill his or her ideal role, the world around us becomes hopeless. You sense that? The natural response to bad authority is words like we'll see in a couple of verses, revile them, threaten them, deceive them. The natural response to bad authority is words like we saw in chapter two, verse one, malice and hypocrisy and slander. What's a human response if you're, quote, reviled? Do you know what that word even means? <laughs> you revile back. What's the human response if you're challenged or struck? You wanna hit back. If you're threatened, I will destroy you either with literal force or with words. Is that not the natural response? This is the response if we don't functionally believe in Jesus. If God is not our ultimate authority, then when when some human institution that you put your hope in lets you down, you reject it. You become angry. You become hopeless. But City Church, what Peter's trying to tell us in these verses is that in Christ, God frees us from those responses. Because in Christ, God frees us from the bondage of putting too much hope in human institutions. Can I say that again? If you get nothing else out of this, this is, I think, Peter's theme. God frees us from the bondage of those responses, the hopeless responses, the despairing responses, the the, the reactionary responses. God frees us from the bondage of those responses because in Christ, God frees us from the bondage of putting too much hope in any human institution. Why are we called to do good? Why are we called to endure even under the reign of an unjust authority? Because of Jesus. Because Jesus is both our example and the only power that we have to rely on to ever dream of doing such a thing. I want to show you, as Peter shows us, how Jesus is both. Look first at verse 21. This is Jesus as our example. For to this you have been called. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you, here's the word, an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but instead continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. These are all, all of these verses are images uh, from Isaiah 53 that was on the screen when you walked in. Isaiah prophesied Jesus as, in his term, a suffering servant. Jesus is our example because Jesus suffered unjustly, but did not sin as he suffered, did not deceive, did did not lash out, did not threaten. 
At at the trial, when Jesus was theologically challenged, he didn't even give an intellectual and apologetic diatribe as if appealing to the mind of his captors alone would convince them. In a few weeks, as we approach Easter, we're going to see Jesus' last days. He He was arrested by betrayed by a close companion. He was arrested and tried illegally. He was mocked and he was spat on and he was beaten. And how did he respond? How would you respond? Because Jesus prayed for his enemies and he forgave those who did not know what they did. And he kept faith in God and God's plan And he submitted to the authorities of the day, even to the point of death. Why? What would make Jesus do that? Remember, Jesus is fully man, also fully God. He was tempted in every way that we are. What what would we do as fully man and fully woman if that was what was happening to us? Why? What would make Jesus respond that way? It's not just because he's a pacifist. It's not because he's the the serene, peaceful guy from all the 70s paintings of Jesus. What would make Jesus respond that way? Verse 15 tells us it's by doing good that we silence fools, which is to say by keeping the will of God that we put to rest other people's ignorance. Verse 23 tells us that Jesus entrusted himself to the only being in the universe who judges justly. Jesus' hope was in a higher authority. And because Jesus' hope was in a higher authority, he let himself submit to a lesser authority. How is Jesus our example? We've already said in Jesus, God frees us from the bondage of hope in human institutions. And it's in Christ as our example we see that freedom. His hope and ours is not in the respected religious rulers of the day. His hope and ours is not even in religious establishments or human institutions. His hope and ours was not in the governor, Pilate, or in the king, Herod, or in uh, the emperor, Tiberius Caesar. Is that the kind of thing you put your hope in? If so, you'll be dismayed when democracy or monarchy or even the institutional church leads in a bad and wrong direction. Hope will be lost when a respected politician or celebrity or pastor ends in moral failure. Each of those is an unjust master. Only God judges justly. Each of those is an imperfect, human, broken, sinful authority. Only God is a perfect, unbroken, unsinful authority. Jesus is our example in that he trusted a greater authority. But Jesus isn't just our example. He's the only power by which we can taste this true freedom. He's the only ability that we have to turn from putting hope in human institutions and instead put trust and faith and hope in our divine authority. Look at these last verses for today. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Church, Jesus is more than just a good example to look at and say, I think I'll try to do that. Because we won't. Look at the contrast here. Jesus didn't sin, but died for our sin. We were not righteous, but Jesus died so that we could become righteous. We were sheep, and because of sinfulness and because of brokenness, we're strained from the shepherd, but Jesus came to earth, lived, died, and rose in order to return us to the one good shepherd. And here's the twist in this conversation. And here's the greatest contrast we'll see today. It's the only truth by which Jesus' example matters. It's the only power by which we are free to submit to any higher institution, any human institution. You ready for the twist? In these verses, who is Jesus' functional master? Talk to me for a minute. Who is Jesus' functional master? Submitted himself to God. God is Jesus' father. God the Father is the sovereign of the universe. God is the authority who sent Jesus to the earth. Look in verse 21. Jesus suffered, what's it say? For you. So let me ask again, who is Jesus' functional master at Holy Week? For whose sake was Jesus unjustly arrested and tried and reviled and beaten and mocked? In laying down his life and in giving his righteousness to us and in taking our punishment for sin, church, who did Jesus most greatly serve? Us. In the plan of God, Jesus served you and served me. And let's take it a step further. Did Jesus do this because we are such good masters to him? Because we're gentle and just, and because we fulfill our ideal role of God, which is pursuing his glory and our joy. Were we that good to Jesus that he just so desired to serve us? This has brought me to tears so many times these last couple weeks. On a cosmic level, Jesus the ultimate authority, the king of the universe who has eternally existed, who is currently at the right hand of the Father, who will return and reign forever, did not use his freedom but to, to, to reject us, but he submitted himself to me, and my sin and my brokenness ordered his crucifixion. And Jesus, the ultimate authority, the king of the universe, who has eternally existed and is seated at the right hand of God and will return and reign forever, submitted himself to you. And your sin and your brokenness orders his crucifixion. I am a worse master to Jesus than any human institution will ever be to me. And you are a worse master to Jesus than any human institution will ever be to you. But Jesus, who was more free than we will ever be, and who was subject to zero human institutions, because he is the ultimate authority, and because he was only under one authority, the perfect authority of God the Father, Jesus did not use his freedom to reject us, 
but he freely submitted himself to the human institutions of the day, and he freely submitted himself to us as unjust functional masters. Jesus used his freedom to serve God and to serve us. He suffered unjustly, not just under unjust earthly masters, but he suffered unjustly for the sake of his unjust earthly masters. And that is the most gracious thing in the sight of God. Church, that's the good news of the gospel. Jesus' sacrificial service to us is our only righteousness. His wounds are the only healing. His death is the only hope for this life. His power and his example is the only possibility with which we could ever be free from rejecting human authority and instead be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. We don't submit and honor human authorities because they're good and right and just but because our trust is in God, who alone is the most good, the most right, the most just. We don't submit and honor human institutions because they perfectly fulfill their roles, but we submit to human institutions because they will ultimately one day answer to God, who is the only perfect and eternal judge, who's the only perfect and eternal authority. We don't submit and honor human institutions because we're in bondage and slaves to them. But instead we submit because we are free men and women serving a better and divine master, Jesus who was the suffering servant for you. Does this make sense? I want to close with, with one verse that kind of goes back to my conversation with Dr. Brashears and to make this a little bit practical, um, I don't, I don't, believe in having a life verse or an annual verse, that kind of stuff. If that's true, you can. It's cute. But um, I think uh, that was probably overstated, sorry. Um, but I think First Peter chapter 2, verse 17 is a verse that should pretty much define every Christian's life as we dwell with Jesus and strive for faith and obedience while we're exiled in this foreign land as we wait for God to call us to our eternal home. Chapter 2, verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. It's that simple. And it's utterly impossible. <laughs> so, so love Christians, the brotherhood, and fear God. Th those are kind of common commands. We'll, we'll never achieve either perfectly in this life but the freedom in Christ and the service to an ultimate and divine authority and the power of the gospel and the spirit is the only way that God could ever move us even in incremental attempts to even try. And church, it's that same freedom in Christ, the same service to an ultimate and divine master and the same power of the gospel and the spirit, which is the only way that we could ever pursue these other two commands as well that are less common. Honor the emperor, or, or for us, honor the authorities and honor everyone. And there's a difference between the postures we take toward those four different roles. Peter says, love the brotherhood, fear God, but he doesn't say love or fear everyone. 
He doesn't say love or fear the human institutions. Hear me, he doesn't even say trust or believe in or be loyal to everyone or trust or believe in or be ultimately loyal to human institutions. Do you see the difference there? This is a fine line, but I want to walk it with you because I think it matters as we live as elect exiles. It's similar to this. One of the Ten Commandments, I was talking with someone about this a couple weeks ago, one of the Ten Commandments is honor your father and mother, right? It's always struck me at odd that, as odd that, that the command isn't love your father and mother or trust your father and mother or believe your father and mother or be loyal to your father and mother. Is that odd? In an ideal world, I think we'd be able to do all of those, but I think in giving that commandment, God is recognizing the world of brokenness and sin and that some relationships will render love and trust and belief in and loyalty impossible. But whether they're good or evil, for all of history since Exodus 20, God's people have been called to honor their father and mother. And whether good or evil, God's people are called to honor everyone in these verses and to honor the emperor or the authorities above us. So Wayne Grudem, who's a a favorite theologian of mine, modern theologian, sees these things as distinct. He says, one might honor or show proper respect to a weak or evil king without either loving him or fearing him. And if this is true, which I think it is, then A, I think it's freeing for a lot of us and helps clarify a lot of confusion that might exist in our minds. And if it's true, which I think it is, then God gives us a posture toward other people in our lives. While the Roman emperor claimed to be divine, what Peter's saying and what God is freeing us to say is that Christian obligation to the state is less than our obligation to God and fellow Christians. God, through Peter, puts the emperor on the same level as everyone. Our posture toward the emperor is the same as everyone. Respect the office, honor the, the, the authority, Don't love them. Don't fear them. Don't even be ultimately loyal to them. Don't trust them implicitly. Don't always believe. Don't even obey, to Dr. Brashear's point, don't even obey them if they command you to sin. Because on the tier of authority, they're third. Fear God. Love the brotherhood. Honor the emperor as you honor everyone. While we honor the emperor, like we honor every human made in the image of God, ours is to love the fellow Christians, and ultimately ours is to fear, or to use these other words, trust, believe, obey, be ultimately loyal to God. I think that posture frees us. I think that posture also frees us to respond to injustices if our human institutions do command sin. So in Acts 5, the same Peter who wrote this letter defended himself for rejecting the command of a council to not share the gospel. And the same Peter said, I must obey God rather than men. In the Old Testament, Daniel rejected the king of Babylon's command to pray only to the king of Babylon. In Genesis, Joseph, who is a servant to Potiphar's household, rejected a relationship um, with Potiphar's wife, who is Joseph's master. Why? Each of these was sin. In Jesus, we can submit 
to any human institution, any human authority, until we're commanded to sin. And commanded is the operative word. Even if that human authority allows for sin, we don't get to reject them. Until we are specifically forced into sin, we submit. And even then, we can obey every other command that they give us and just reject the one sinful command, not reject the human, because we're supposed to honor them as a human. We submit until we're forced to sin. If we're forced to sin, then we reject the sinful command and obey all the other commands. And even as we reject the sinful command, we do so in the posture of a Christian, which is to say humbly, non-violently, and while still trying to honor the person in that position made in the image of God. I'm dwelling on this verse for a little while, but I think it's pretty vital for us. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. The only way to do this is the gospel. The only hope we have if there is an evil human authority is a greater authority. The only trust, the only way that that we can be freed from putting too much weight on any boss or government or authority, whether it's good or bad, is if we trust God. Only the Spirit can give us the fruit to reject an evil command with gentleness and respect and humility. Those are all things that are called fruits of the Spirit. It's only if we believe that we have a greater home and an eternal kingdom that we can endure suffering in this temporary season, exiled under a foreign king or someone with any other title or authority. And it's only in the gospel is Jesus' willful choice to submit to us, submit to the will of his Father, but for our sakes, even while we were evil, that we can find an example and find the true power to be subject to every human institution. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, we desperately need you no matter where we are in our view of authorities around us, no matter where we are as far as a view of uh, home-based authority or national or global authority or anything between there, Lord, we need you to heal. We need you to heal not just us, we need you to heal those around us. Lord, for those of us who follow Jesus, would you help us to, to know what it looks like to honor any authority, honor every human, even pray for those who you've put over us as a means of honoring them. And would you help us to know what it looks like to do so as we love our fellow believers? And would you help us to know what it, do, what it means to do so as we fear you and you alone? God, would you help us to obey? Would you help us to submit? Would you help us to be wise and discerning? Would you help us to know what to do if we're called to a sinful command? Would you help us to be humble as we pursue your righteousness? Jesus, we thank you that though you had far less of a reason to submit to anyone but your Father God, you chose to serve us. And we get the greatest benefit as unjust and unlikely masters to the most injustice from the most unlikely servant who's also a king. 
Would you help this to become real for us, Father? It's in Jesus' name. Amen.